Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Marketing Matters Show. This is your ultimate source for digital marketing insights and business advice, hosted by your favorite industry experts, myself, Daniel Alvarado, CEO at White Trick Media and Aclix, and Francisco Lacayo, Chief Revenue Officer at White Trick Media. With over a decade of experience on the field, we are going to do our best at sharing our knowledge and inviting some relevant guest uh, speakers to discuss their own expertise. So listen in to discover the latest strategies and challenges facing digital businesses of all sizes. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Matt Rouse, co-founder of Hope Digital Marketing Canada and author of Peertainment. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? I think we're doing pretty pretty solid here, Frank. I mean, it's a, it's a nice... Those are pretty neat intro, I got to say then. Uh, awesome, of course. I mean... We are people's favorites, right? That, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I like to hope so, yeah. Good. Um, so, Matt, I mean, I think this is going to be an interesting show today that I'm very excited about. We actually just did, for everyone to know, we just did a show with you uh, about a week ago that I had the pleasure of joining. So uh, you have your own podcast, that right? That's right. Digital Marketing Masters. And your episode is going to be out shortly. It's like the next one on the editing list here. And we'll talk about podcast editing because I got a couple of good AI tools for that as well that we're going to talk about. Great. I love it. I think that we have a few things here lined up in reverse to content creation. And and that is a little bit about what AI is going on here. So um, before we get started, though, I kind of wanted to just kind of frame you with a couple of questions here. I know you were just in the U.S. Uh, you just was in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Is that correct? Uh, for a AI conference. How was that? Yeah, it was MACON, the Marketing Artificial Intelligence Convention, and uh, that's put on by the Marketing Artificial Intelligence Institute, who also has a really good podcast, by the way, that's kind of a news, AI news podcast, which is another one to keep up on, folks. Take notes unless you're driving, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was a really great time, about 750 uh, agency owners, business owners, you know, corporate leaders, CMOs. It was quite the show. And, uh, man, I, I'm excited to talk about it. We got some mind blowing stuff today. It's going to be like, what was like your favorite session within, within the conference? Oh man, that's really tough. Um, there was at the kind of end of the show, the last keynote was by, um, Cassie, Orzikoff, I think is how you pronounce her last name. She is the head of decision at Google uh, for their AI division. Uh, oh, I think nice. I think her title is head of head of decision making. But, anyways, she's an AI ethicist, so she talked about kind of the ethics of technology and artificial intelligence and how they're attempting to remove bias in those systems and put guardrails on them and protections and stuff. And how can we uh, all kind of together build a better world uh, using AI rather than just let it, you know, let the cards fall where they may kind of idea. So yeah, that was a really great one. That's that's interesting. Did they mention anything about what they're doing to make sure that that happens and that takes place? And obviously, especially this big brands like Google, Microsoft, um, they they have the financial power and the funding to obviously make the biggest changes here that can actually be followed along by everybody else. So like, have they mentioned anything in particular about how they're going to ensure that there is ethical practices in place? 
Well, I think one of the biggest things with ethics was trying to get more people at the table to talk about ethics. And that's a difficult thing to do when you're in such a closed field. I mean, you've got, you know, 100, 200 people in the world who are at kind of the top of the AI engineering game. And I mean, honestly, it's not a very diverse crowd there, right? So you need to get more people at the table. You need to have people who are not software engineers, for one thing, right? But also you need people who are from different cultures and, you know, talk about different types of representation and legal and political and all these, you know, groups that need to be involved in that. But also there's the side of how do we um, make the systems useful for people and usable for people, but also how do we protect from a couple angles. And one of those is inherent bias in the systems and the data that's going into them and how do we remove those things. And another one is how do we protect people from the dangers of those systems. Um, and and I mean, we may want to touch on that briefly because I know it's a big question on everyone's mind, but the AI is not going to turn into Terminator and shoot everyone. That's super inefficient, right? There's other ways that AI could be used for bad things, right? And that's what they're trying to protect against. So there's the ethics standpoint of, you know, cultural bias and, and racism and things like that. Uh, but then there's also the, you know, how do we protect it from causing harm versus just adding to product productivity. I heard Frank has nightmares about AI just, you know, no, I mean, I think it, this is this is a very interesting topic because one thought that came to mind is that, you know, in order for AI to be as efficient as possible, it has to learn from human behavior, you know, and the more it learns, then in theory, the better it will be. But, you know, humans are biased and, and there's a lot happening in this train of thought of how a human processes information. So in order to make AI maybe less biased, you have to dehumanize it. But by doing that, it's maybe not as efficient. It still becomes something very squared and robotic in a way, if you want to call it like that. So it's a super tricky subject, I guess. And, and that's probably why Google is investing so much money and most companies are investing so much money in how to navigate that thin line. Because by removing bias, you're also removing a strong human component, which is what makes you know humans different and probably what gives the added value of, uh, of the outcome of, of you know, an AI tool or something like that. So, so that's interesting. I mean, it, it, it's such a, such an interesting topic and there's so much going on that it's, it's hard to really sometimes hear behind all the noise that's happening. I'm actually curious how you got to go to this conference. Was it, you know, were you invited? Did you find it? Did you choose it? If so, why did you go to this one? Because we're seeing so many events and so many things happening around this topic. Uh, and a lot of people are trying to take advantage of the topic as well to sell you things and things like that. So I'm, I'm curious on how you ended up there and, and how do you get to go to events where this one seems like it added a lot of value. So how did you get to that one? Uh, so originally I went to Creator Economy Expo, which also just happened to be in Cleveland. Uh, so I've never been to Cleveland my whole life, but now I've been twice in two months. <laughs> but uh, Creator Economy Expo is about how people who are professional creators like YouTubers, podcasters and things, how do they make a living, right? How does that, uh, how do the economics of that system work? One of the speakers at that event was Mike Caput, who is, uh, I believe he is the content manager for, uh, or I think it's his title, maybe president of content management for the Artificial Intelligence Marketing Institute. 
So I watched his talk there, and then I spoke with him a little bit, and he was like, yeah, we have conference coming up, we got a podcast. So I listened to the podcast, and I was like, all right, I'm definitely got to go to this one. So, and it was worth it. Awesome. It, it looked very exciting, and uh, I think one of the interesting things about bias, speaking, you know, while, while we're on the subject, I was actually reading earlier an article on how re a research paper was published on uh, potential bias detected on anti um, AI, let's say algorithms. So like, you know, we, we talked about, about this the other day about how, um, there are a lot of things being published in regards to AI detection so that you can detect AI content. Um, and so those, that, that same AI that is being used to detect AI content is actually kind of been found to be biased towards non-native English speakers. So if you're a non-native, um, and you create a content you maybe did publish original content. AI may be biased towards thinking that that is AI generated because your vocabulary may sometimes not be as, let's say, as as large as maybe, you know, as, as natural. So um, that's that's an interesting bias, for example, that that would actually be harmful, so to speak, to a certain degree, especially, again, if if you're applying somewhere and that agency now has uh, some sort of this this system in place to make sure that it was like, oh, we don't really, don't really want to hire anybody that's actually using AI-generated content or something along those lines. So if you want to think of testing and things like that, that's a, that's an interesting bias to like go over it. Um, it's it's so easy because again, it's like what samples are we are we using to help these algorithms learn, right? So it's all going to be based based on that, and obviously the majority of what's available it's it's native English in this case. So it's it's an interesting thing to to keep in mind here. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, OpenAI just removed their AI checker and they they removed that tool basically saying that we think AI has gotten to the point that we can't find it anymore. Right. Like it's it's you can't test for it at this point and be accurate because it's gotten too good. And this is and I mean, this I've heard a couple of people say this before. And actually, we even had to talk about this, I think, before our show uh, recording on, on my podcast was that the AI you're using now is the worst AI you're ever going to use. And it's pretty good, right? So imagine that everything from here only gets better. And when I say better, I mean better at what it's designed to do. It may not be better objectively for, you know, bias and things like that, but it's going to be more productive than it is now. It's going to be faster. Um, but if you look at something like uh, I believe it's Anthropic that said that their new model that they're building, it's going to be somewhere between 10 and 100 times as powerful as GPT-4, and they expect it to be out in 6 to 12 months. So I can barely wrap my head around how good GPT-4 is, especially with something like Code Interpreter. Yep. But then you imagine something like 100 times more powerful. It's unimaginable, right? So we got to get the bias and the ethics thing right soon, or it's going to be a real issue, right? Um, and I'll give you an example. So Midjourney, the uh, it's an image software, right? Image creator. There was a gal who, um, she's a Asian descent, and she uploaded her image into Midjourney and said, make this a professional headshot to use on LinkedIn. And what it did is it made a picture of someone who looked like her but was white. So that's a bias in the system, obviously, right? Yeah. It's saying that a professional person is a white person and not an Asian descent person, right? So that's an obvious bias that needs to be, you know, taken out of these systems. 
but the system is trained on certain types of data, right? You have to, you consider how, how an AI system is educated, right? What they start with is very simple things, you know, and it's not programmed like a normal piece of software. You don't put in instructions and say, do this with this information or whatever. What you do is you say, it, essentially it's a neural network and you're going to say, I'm going to give you examples and you're going to make notes of these examples. And then I'm going to test you on those examples. And when you get them right, you reinforce that connection. And if you get them wrong, you decrease that connection. And then we're going to do that a billion times. So what happens is over and over and over and over, you test it with stuff. So you show it a hundred pictures of a cat and you say, this is what a cat looks like. And then you show it a picture of a goat. And if it says it's a cat, you say, well, that's wrong. But if it's been shown 10 million headshots of professional young women and 9.9 .9 million of the ones it was shown were white girls, it's going to think a white girl is what a professional looks like. So that's one of the problems is the testing data that goes in, not only does it have to be balanced, right? It has to be ethical, but then... They're also working on AI systems to test that content for bias before it gets put into the system. So you're essentially using an AI to check your AI, and then you're going to have another AI that checks the output of the AI. So it's kind of this multiple AI system before you get the output. And then they put, you know, guardrails on top, which are, you know, don't let it teach you, you know, all the steps to make a bomb or something like that, right? So... <laughs> There's, there's probably got to be some like questions that are, that are, you know, blacklisted for the most part. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's tons of them, but the problem is like, there was an interview just a couple of weeks ago with the founder of open AI. And, and he was saying like, it, it will cheerfully teach you how to like destroy humanity if we let it. Right. Uh, because that's what his job is just to give you a happy predictive system of, you know, whatever it is that you're looking for. And so they have to protect for that. Right. I think the tricky part there is again, who's going to determine, you know, the, the, the gray areas, because maybe we can all agree, like the entire humanity can agree on maybe 10, 15, 20 things that we all think are wrong. But outside of that, there are so many things that they're just in the middle that, you know, who tells AI what's, what's ethical and what isn't, or what's biased and what isn't. And that's kind of, you know, that, that's the, the, the complicated process here is if, if you're using a bias machine to find its own bias, then it's just going to work with what you feed it. And if what you, you know, you're feeding the machine is biased, then you know what the outcome is going to be. And then someone has to determine what the machine needs to be fed. And then it, it's just one of those loops where it's tricky. And, and I think that's why it's never really going to be able to replace humans in a lot of these things. And I think that no matter how exponentially it grows, because like you mentioned, it's growing pretty fast and it will be exponential in, in a year or two, it's, I think it's going to be 500 times what we have right now. Um, but I still think we haven't figured out the human component or the human role in this process because we're trusting almost fully on the machines to be able to figure out by themselves. And we're trying to tell the machines to regulate themselves. And obviously we're not talking about a Terminator scenario or anything like that. But but when you have situations like this, when there is bias and there is, you know, they're being fed human behavior, then what the machine's going to say is, hey, I just took what you gave me and that's the result. Maybe it's just a reflection of who you guys are, or you know, the the, the group that fed this information is a reflection of of what I'm, I'm you know I'm giving you as an output. So that's the uh, I think that's the tricky part there. Well, that if you've hit on something that's also very important, 
you know, even from working with AI as like in your job or at your agency, right? The the value of the task that you're using the AI for is the same amount of value you should place on having a human check the work, right? So if it's vital that you get it right, you better have a person who you know is going to double check that for sure, maybe more than one person, right? Like a couple edits or something to go through if it's, you know, a written work and you're going to produce a brief that you're going to send to, you know, your client and you absolutely have to nail this or, you know, you're not going to get paid, then you better have a couple of people read it, right? I think that's a good tie-in into one of the questions that we have, which is, so So we, we're talking about ethical from the people that are building the models, right? So so this is what we have been discussing so far. It's obviously that they have to have some guardrails in place and everything along those lines. But then, you know, what are some of the ethical concerns that then agencies, for example, or business owners who are using AI to produce your content, whether that is to produce your content, to edit the content, what, you name it, right? So like, what are some of those ethical things that then now translate into the business owners and what are some of their responsibilities on their side that you have seen or that at least you kind of have put in place for for your own business? Right. I think the first thing that you need to do is have transparency with your client about are you using AI? And I mean, we've always been uh, straight up front with our clients, like if we're going to use staff or their contractors or vendors or virtual assistants, right? 100% clear, we'll tell people who we're using to do, you know, the work that we're going to do for them because we want them to know. And also, you know, we have, there's there's some legal requirements for some types of clients that you have to meet, right? And so if you're going to be using AI or your staff's using AI, you better know, like, can this actually be copyrighted before I give it to my client or I publish it on their behalf and they say this is copyright under us? And I know like in the US, the current copyright law says if it's not made by a human, you can't copyright it. And there's no guideline to say, how much do I have to edit this before it's considered copyrightable? Uh, Now, I'm not an IP attorney, but that seems to have been fairly clear so far. Um, now, there's another thing, though, and that is, like, if I'm, like, how important is the thing you're doing, right? Do I really need a copyright on an image I'm going to put into a, a Facebook story that's going to last 24 hours, right? And I mean, it's not going in a museum. We're just getting it done kind of thing, right? Uh, and as long as I can make the work the way that it should be, I don't think this is any problem, you know, using an AI to, to generate that. Maybe you drop it into Photoshop, use some of the generative tools in Photoshop beta. Uh, you know, what a great one is, like, this happens all the time. You guys probably know this. Somebody sends you an image that you want to use for a vertical, but it's, you know, 16 by 9. And if you cut it, it's not going to have part of the information you need or it's going to be too short or it's too small or whatever. You can drop that into Photoshop beta and you can expand it and have it AI create more of the, you know, above ground and below ground shot or whatever that is. And then you can publish it, right? So you've got tools to do these things. Whether that's something you could copyright right now in the States, I don't think so. Uh, Europe seems to think it's okay, uh, in the EU anyway. Um, So tough to say, right? Um, And I also, this... 
this came up a lot. Companies kind of getting together with their staff and saying, okay, we're going to build like an AI council, right? And we're going to have somebody from legal and somebody from, you know, well, like your CMO in there and maybe your operations manager or something like that, whatever, right? Depends on the size of your organization. And then they're finding out that some of their staff have already been using it without telling them. So like they've been writing things for clients and sending those to those clients or publishing things on their behalf and they've been using GPT-4, right? And just editing it, which is probably fine from both an operation and a legal standpoint, but your contract with your client doesn't say that. So, I mean, that's a problem because say they don't like it. You go, well, we use GPT-4 to write it and, and they're like, okay, well, you didn't say you were gonna. And now you got legal problems. So- I think that you need to be upfront with your client about how you're creating the content you're creating for them and how much AI is going to be involved, or at least that it's an option for you. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think it's, there's two parts to that. Number one is the transparency internally. So it's, it's extremely important that as business owners, for instance, that we can give some clear directives on how is the business intending to use AI moving forward what are acceptable use cases for unacceptable use cases, quote unquote, right? Um, and because everyone is otherwise, lack of clarity here is gonna lead to everyone doing whatever they think it's the best way to go or the best way to proceed. Um, and I think I think we saw that even internally here um, earlier on where I, I had a couple of people and I just like, you know, I like to walk around the office and just like peek at desktops and see what people kind of do it. I used to see ChatGPT earlier on, and I was like, "Okay, well, everyone's in there. Oh, okay, let's see what what are what are you guys doing?" So, started asking some questions, and you know, it was a bit of that um, of that process of just discovering what are some of the use cases that the team felt like um, you know this AI could help them with, and and I think it starts with that to then go in and saying, "Okay, well, these are some of the use cases that are in green. This is some of the red stuff. Don't don't do that." Um, and and I think it will translate. Uh, very well into making sure that you set those boundaries clearly so that people can stick to that, number one, and then number two, because then you can translate that into your client collateral and say, okay, well, this is how we as a business choose to use AI, um, and this is how it benefits your business too, because there's a lot of business value to be created from that, right? So um, as long as clients understand that and you're clear about what how you're presenting that, then I think it's it's, it's the right way to do it. Right. And don't tell you like, don't tell all your staff, well, don't use GPT or you're going to get fired. Right. You want to identify the people who are using those tools already because those are your productive people. Right. That's your people who already know how to use it. And you want more of them, not less. Right. Because as it gets better, you need people who use those tools and understand them and have worked with them because it's going to lower the amount of training you have to do for those tools. Right. For people. And I mean, one of the guys um, at the conference, I, his name escapes me right now, uh, but he's a professor at business school. He studies AI. And I think it's from Wharton. And he was saying that when like humanity invented the steam engine, like it was a 12% increase to the amount of like productivity per person on the planet. It was a 12% increase. And they're estimating AI to be a 30% increase. We're talking like bigger than the steam engine, bigger than the invention of the industrial revolution in the impact of per person productivity. 
So if you got 10 people on your staff and three of them are already, you know, increased productivity, like you would be better off to take those three and share what they do to the other seven than to get rid of them and tell the other seven, now go learn this thing, you know, follow our guidelines. I think uh, I actually have a good tie into that question, which is one of the other ones that we had here, which is, do, do you think there's going to be new job titles that are going to come as part of this AI revolution or this AI change? Like, do you see AI prompt engineers, you know, AI XYZ? Like, do you think that's going to change to that degree or just essentially the same roles, just adding in some AI responsibilities within them? I don't think prompt engineer is going to be a thing because the systems are going to get better faster and you're not going to have to prompt them as much, right? Because they're predictive systems to begin with. So hopefully they're going to be more predictive at what you want with less input. And once you get the tied into data sources and stuff like that, you know, it kind of understands what you're doing. Uh, but there is going to be things like, you know, head of AI and AI ethicists and, you know, your AI trading people. And, you know, probably you'll have some head of, you know, AI or AGI agents or whatever they end up calling, you know, autonomous systems. Somebody's got to be in charge of them. Um, and, you know, it's not just an IT job to make sure that they function and they work and they're secure. It's also a job of who's training these systems so that they do the work they're supposed to do. And, um, and I mean, that opens a whole other can of worms too, is when you project out what's going to happen when people are more productive per person. And everybody kind of goes immediately to reduced headcount, right? People are going to lose their job because more people are more productive. And there's also, it could be that you keep the same headcount, but you have the added productivity, which decreases your other operating costs, which increases your profit. So companies can make more money without losing any headcount, right? Because they can reinvest the productivity gains. And then there's also, you know, the model of, well, if I take these increases in productivity I have from AI um, in, and I kind of project out to the future, then I don't need as much future headcount. So maybe they're not going to add more people going forward, but they're not going to lay everybody off either, right? Because you still need people to do the work. You still need people to check. And though 30% increase of productivity is a massive increase for any company, that doesn't equate to a 30% loss in headcount. I mean, some companies might do that, but then you just end up having the same amount of productivity and making the same amount of money. It would be better to keep those people, be more productive and make more money. So it just doesn't make sense to lay off all your staff because of AI. You know, one thing that, that we keep in mind here um, in regards to, you know, the impact that AI will have, not only productivity, but just everyday work that we do is, the way we try to see at least here at Whitechark is, if I'm giving you back time because you're more productive, I might not necessarily just give you more clients from the get-go or try to, you know, have less people do more things. But the expectation would be that if you have more time, that you find more added value for the customer. So if AI is allowing you to spend, you know, half an hour less doing ad copy or half an hour less doing keyword research, then what I would expect is that you spend more time maybe doing competitor research yourself or reading more about the industry that the client's in and learning more about it. So I think a good way to look at it is let's be more productive. And if we're not going to increase 
production volume in the short term, let's produce, let's increase the quality of the work that we're providing to clients. And, and that's also how we approach the conversation with customers because customers ask all the time, are you using AI? Some of them want us to use it. Some of them don't. And a lot of them don't really understand it. They say that they want us to use it because it's kind of like the hot word or they feel that we're going to be better. Um, but it, at the end of the day, it's a machine, you know, it's, it's, it's the output is going to be what, what you tell it to do. So um, the way we try to use it here is give me more value. If you're going to use a tool to make your job faster, um, also make sure that it's better. And if the output of that is better and you're also able to do other good things for the client, then it's a huge win for all of us. But if we're just, you know, falling into this loop of like more cookie cutter things and then get things done faster, but we're not giving any added value and the customers are really benefiting from it. No one's going to win. You know, that's where it becomes a problem because you're more productive on paper, but the quality of what you're putting out there is not that high. So that that's how we like to approach it so that we feel that we have a healthy relationship with AI versus, you know, this is coming in to take our jobs or this is going to make us a, a cookie cutter, you know, typical agency just delivering basic content, but rather something that adds value to the, to the process and to the customer at the end of the day. How many times has this come up in an agency? And I mean, as a rhetorical question, because I know the answer. If we had time, we would do this, but we only have time to do <laughs> this part of it, right? You know, yeah, it would be great to do like a six-part blog series about this wonderful thing and case studies for it all and, you know, turn all of that into social media shares and we're going to run a podcast, you know, like a single season podcast about this topic and just like make YouTube videos and we're going to do all, but our client only gave us enough money to write one blog article and post one thing, you know? So you now have, as you reduce the kind of, you know, I hate to call it like grunt work or something, right? But as the kind of tedious work is done quicker then the creative work can be done better, right? Just like you were saying, but also in some cases, quantity does matter, right? So, you know, if it was, yeah, this client would do better if we had time to post five times a week instead of three. Well, now I got time to post five instead of three, right? Yeah. So you can have some quantity improvements as well. And that's, I think, part of, I think that's part of what you mentioned in regards to uh, as business owners, or at least those in charge of, for example, managing the product construct and the way the product is serviced, it's like, take this opportunity to reevaluate your productivity per person. Like what are you able to produce within certain timelines? Like, like at least for example, we have our own time in motion for all of the activities that our team is doing. So can we review the time in motion and say, okay, well this allows us now to say like you, like you very well mentioned. So if we did any sort of creative works and we had like, okay, we had AB testing that we could do once a month, we can now maybe do it more often. Or again, we can do um, in the sense of, SEO, for example, like we can maybe do more content edits or we could do um, more uh, blog posts, for example, you know, which which we might be able to get to faster, depending again on kind of that industry um, and what kind of content we produce. So what that's going to ultimately translate into, it's better results for the customer, which can in turn uh, potentially then impact the amount of investment that they're doing, because obviously the investment that they are is having a good impact. So ultimately for the same productivity level or the same productivity investment in terms of team size, we're able to create a, a much bigger impact for customers, which can then in turn give us the same and not have to necessarily acquire new customers either because uh, of course acquisition is is kind of, you know, a, a different ball game. So 
Um, but yeah, I think that's that's certainly something to to keep an eye out for. And you know, how is how is your team today in regards to AI? Like, you know, what are some of the most common things that that your team has decided to um, utilize AI with? So we're all in on AI. We will use AI for every task that we can find it for to automate. But I also have a team of three, so we have a team of three doing more work now than we used to do with a team of eight. And we didn't lay off our team because of AI. We actually laid off our team at when COVID came out because we didn't know what was going to happen. We wanted to make sure everybody could get unemployment or, you know, whatever they could at the time. And then we figured out that, you know, we could get all the work done still, even though we were kind of working ourselves to death. But, you know, we could still get all the work done. And then as automation and AI started to come out and get better, we're like, maybe we can, you know, like I was saying earlier about not hiring in the future is that's basically the path that we chose. We said, I think more of these tasks will be able to be automated in the future. So we decided, you know, instead of going like hard on scaling and hiring and everything, let's do better work with the clients that we have and try and, you know, do more with less. And, you know, now we're back to normal, you know, 40, I guess I probably work 50 hours, but uh, I like working, so... My business partner is probably, you know, 30 hour work week guy. And, you know, we have 118 clients. So I think we do pretty well for our team of three and uh, we have a couple vendors and stuff, but yeah. Yeah. And, and there's no, we don't have any quantity sacrifice anymore, right? We're not like, okay, we don't have time to do the best job that we could for this client because we have so many things that we have to get done. Now we can get them all done and then we can think of, what else can I do, right? Like what's really going to push the envelope, right? Or what's going to move the needle that we haven't tried yet? So that's the neighborhood that we're in now. Um, and we're using a lot of AI tools to do that. Could you give us some some examples of those tools? That was actually the next question that I wanted to ask. So which tools would you recommend? You know, there's, I think every tech company that can add AI into the conversation is doing it. <laughs> if they have something that, you know, automatically like turns yeah the coffee maker on then let's call it ai so um there's a lot out there but which are the tools that you you know you would say have brought you the most added value at least for you guys the agency level you mentioned some for podcasting which we're definitely interested to learn about but in general which ones are you using so i'll tell you our process and so we record we use uh, Streamyard, but uh, we record with Streamyard. we don't live stream we just use it to record that gives us the video file. And then we'll put that into Descript, which will give us allow us to edit where you can uh, use it like a text editor, right? You can change if anybody's not familiar with Descript. You could just click a button, have it remove all the ums and ahs. And I say, you know, a lot. So that's handy to remove that, um, which is a pain in the butt manually. It can also fix uh, some of the video. So it has a new tool. This is kind of a creepy tool, but they've added it so that if you're looking away at your notes and stuff during the video, it actually puts a digital copy of your eye over your eyeballs and keeps them facing the screen. <laughs> but I haven't used it personally yet, but I've heard it's it, it can be a little creepy looking. Um, but yeah, we use that to edit, which also gives us a transcript. Um but I like the time-coded transcript from a program called Runway ML. 
So we'll upload the video once it's finished into Runway ML to get time code, um, closed captioning. And then we upload all that to YouTube. And then now we want to make our social shares. We use a program called Get Munch. And Get Munch will cut into vertical video, but it automatically uses the transcript and vocal inflections and volume level to find where it thinks the most interesting bits are. And it automatically cuts those for you. And it can cut them square or vertical. And then it'll also overlay the text and it does word by word transcription on the captions. And then it can also highlight words that it thinks are the important words in those. So you get a really good quality piece out and it also has a text editor in it so that if, you know, somebody's name is spelled wrong or something, you can fix it in the caption. But another thing you can tweak with it is you can ask it, okay, I want 15 seconds before and after every clip. So if it starts the clip at like an awkward spot, you can just move a little slider over and get it to the right spot. And then when you save that, you get the vertical video in an MP4. It will give you the title and the description for YouTube and a tweet and the hashtags for that one clip. And it'll give us, in a normal podcast, it'll give us somewhere between 8 and 16 video clips. So that's all of our clips for the next, you know, two weeks that we need. Um, for our YouTube thumbnail, we'll actually use Canva. And uh, so we'll drop it into Canva and... Canva, technically speaking, the AI, the background tool, background removing is an AI tool. Their generative tool is not there yet, but it's close. Um, and it will get better over time. Um, we'll use their templates to make our thumbnails and, uh, you know, screenshot the video and use the AI in Canva to remove the background, replace the background tools. So, and then from there, uh, we can take the transcript of the entire thing and we use GPT to make summaries, make a LinkedIn post that talks about this, including, you know, these two or three parts that we think are important in it. And it'll make a LinkedIn post for us. And then we can also take that, transcribe it into a blog post. Um, so we'll put that on the website with the blog post. And so now we've got our YouTube video, our podcast, usually 12 clips of vertical video, our LinkedIn post, our tweet, and our, our uh, and the blog article, all done from that one video that we edited. How long would you say that takes you from one video? Let's say you record a podcast and doing all of that uh, using those tools. How, how long do you think it takes you? About four and a half hours. It used to take us 30. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of, of our process as well um, and because there's a lot of, great things there. We're using some tools ourselves, but we're still doing a lot of manual work. So we're definitely gonna go to some testing. But I was just, as you were adding things on, I was just thinking of time, like, you know, how much time is he saving by <laughs> getting a tool to do all these things? And at no point during the conversation did I feel that there could be an issue with what the tool was doing. Like I had no concerns in terms of the ethics or things like that. So um, this is super interesting. Yeah. We're recording right now, right? Yeah. This is all of my time that this process requires. Somebody else can do all these tasks. They don't need yeah. to be an expert, right? All they need to know is how to use the tool. Yeah. I mean, you have to have some decision making, you know, power kind of thing of this, you know, maybe it was a weird spot that it cut the video or something. 
uh, which is why we have Alicia, our editor, does that work, right? And, you know, she's a college-educated writer. Um, you know, we also have somebody else we use periodically on the side who has a journalism degree. So a very good writer you can use to now, you know, be the person who checks your videos and fixes your blog posts and your social media posts and all that stuff. And they help with our books. And I don't know if you see behind me, I got my books here. Um, so like my latest book, Puretainment, we had uh, GPT-4 write the foreword to the book. And I actually fed it the entire book um, using a Langchain model. And then I had it write the foreword for the book based on what was written in the book. So we read the book, wrote the foreword, had Alicia do a little bit of editing on it. And uh, by helping with, you know, some of the uh, AI editing tools, um, you can take a look at something like Jasper or Writer. Um, Writer is an enterprise level tool. Jasper is something that pretty much anybody could afford to use. Uh, we also use Texta, uh, which is an AI tool. Uh, but using those to help us with some of the editing and uh, I was able to write that book and from the day I wrote the first word to the day it was on Amazon was 110 days. Wow. It's crazy. I mean, it, again, just the concept of time and how long it takes us to do things, is that, that's the biggest change I think with AI. Is. And I worked on that book an hour a day, five days a week. So it didn't take up all of my time. I was still yeah. able to run the agency and still take my kid to swimming class. That's crazy. And again, it, it, it isn't only added value to the reader, but also to you and your family and what you get to do outside of, of your main task. So, yeah, I think that's a great example of, I mean, we started maybe talking a bit about the concerns we had about AI and potential blogs, but I think we're closing on, on a positive note and, and giving some great examples of how AI can help you and just be more productive, but produce quality content and also... I have another tool, another fabulous tool for agencies. And I don't know if you guys have looked at this one yet because, uh, Daniel, I hadn't, I didn't know about this when we were talking last because I saw them at the conference and I just started testing it. And it's amazing right out of the box. It's called Pacio. It's A-K-K-I-O. And you connect up like your Google Analytics and your search console and your sales platform data and you basically just put all of your data into this thing and it has a GPT-4 chat interface that is educated on your current data. And so you can just talk to it. You can say, from all of our sales data from this date to this date, what do you think our channel that needs the most effort to improve is? And it'll be like, well, your organic search was down 17% from this date to this date. And you know, you can say, what are the five articles that have the most traffic but are the most out of date and it's one, dun, 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 right and so it does all these amazing things you just talk through the data oh my god i used to spend like 25 percent of my time is reading data right trying to make a decision what's the next thing to do for this client that's going to move the needle right what blog post do we need to write should we be fixing up old ones or writing new ones should we do we need more advertising or less advertising right am i Am I losing money because my email subscriber is also seeing a Facebook ad and then searching on Google and then clicking a Google ad and now I've paid for the same subscriber three times? You know, all this kind of stuff. And now I can just ask the tool and it tells me and I go fix it, right? It's saving me a ton of time. I can't wait to dig into it more. I've only been using it for about three days now. It's great. 
That's that's really nice. We have uh we have Tableau Cloud. Uh, Tableau Cloud has some some sort of similar thing. I think as Frank mentioned earlier, um, you know how every vendor now has like if they have the ability to like add an AI version of their product or an AI feature to their product, obviously they could do that. Uh, so they, for example, have like AI generated summaries of data. Um, so like you can add a paragraph that it's like okay, explain this data to me, and they will explain it to you in a paragraph. Um, it also supports like asking questions. But certainly not um, in, let's say, an intuitive uh, GPT-like, you know, just kind of prompt very quickly. Um, so it, it it's more so just, yeah, this this one more so has to like, uh, at least on the Tableau side, it still has to sort of understand your your column names and things like that. So it'll sort of help you autocomplete. Uh, but I'm curious to, to try out this one that you mentioned. And I think it's a good find. AI is coming to every tool, right? Yeah. And... I mean, there's there's good and bad, right? There's there's a whole bunch of tools that are essentially what we call GPT wrappers, right? It's just we've used the GPT AI to do something for you, so you don't have to figure out how to do it. Most of those probably going to go away eventually, right? Um, unless they have some other data or something connected to it, I don't see how they can build a moat for their business when you could just ask, like, when GPT five comes out, they're out of business because it'll do it better than the wrapper, right? And then you've got generative kind of stuff that's going into tools. So you've got, you know, Copilot and Microsoft tools, and you've even got like in Zoho now, you can generate emails and things with a generative button that's in there. And there's a lot of talk about the button, right? You know, once you have to write this email button and it writes the email and the other person's got a button that says, read the email and summarize it to me. <laughs> and it lie. Yeah, and reply. Are you even talking to each other at that point? Yeah. But, I mean, that's for people to figure out on their own. Uh, but I think where it really comes in is, you know, something like this, you know, like Accio tool. I'm not affiliated with them or anything. I just like the tool. Uh, bringing in all these data sources and massive amounts of data and then being able to ask it questions and have it understand the process of what you're trying to figure out and then give you insight rather than you having to explain what kind of insight you're trying to get. It's a huge advantage, right? And it's just going to get better. So right now it's hard. I mean, it's hard looking at data. Like how much data is there just in GA4 for one company? Like it's unbelievable. Like I can, I can get hundreds of reports out of Shopify for a customer who has thousands of clients and I would never be able to go through it all, right? Yeah, no, it sounds like a kind of like having a data scientist, but you know, 24 seven and crunching numbers probably faster. Yeah, so uh, it's incredible. I think we are just, I think we're over time, but I'm happy that we are. Um, I think we have, yeah, no, no, but I think we we should. And this is just an idea for the marketing team. If we could have maybe a, a second episode with Matt and maybe we set a time frame like six months just to discuss the evolution of what we talked today versus where we're going to be. Um, I think that'll be a fascinating episode. I think the the content today has been uh, incredibly interesting. Um, I'm excited about this episode. I really wish we had more time because there's so much to cover. But um, before we wrap it up, Matt, like uh, Dan mentioned, we do have one question that we share with every guest. Um, so if we want to end the note with that, it would be, what is one valuable lesson that you've learned throughout your career that you would like to pass on to others? I think you have to always be trying to do creative testing on whatever's coming out that's new. 
but you also have to not get it carried away with the shiny object. And in this case, AI is not a shiny object. And there has been in the past, you know, things like I did a lot of research into crypto, a lot of research into Web3, and those emerging technologies may still, you know, be important in the future. But AI is something that's already important now. And, you know, we, me and 750 other people who are trying to figure out what's going on with AI just met for three days down in Cleveland and talking to each other. And there are people already doing incredible things with it. And the truth is, it's an AI is not going to take your job. A person using an AI is going to take the job of someone not using AI. I think that's extremely valuable for everyone right now that is still not sure how to incorporate AI into our day-to-day. Um, one thing you mentioned was that, you know, we're seeing maybe the worst version of AI. It's also important to understand that what we're seeing now is what people were working on a year or two years ago. So what's being worked on right now that we're going to see in one or two years, it's, it's you know, years ahead of, of what you can expect in, in terms of productivity and added value and things like that. So... I think that's a great way to close the episode, you know, uh, embrace what you can embrace and start early so you can have that competitive edge and, and, you know, the, the better tool out, the better tools out there can probably add a lot of value, but you also have to learn how to find the right tool and do the research yourself and go with your gut and test it out and, and not be afraid to incorporate it. So, um, Matt, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this has been extremely fun. Um, could you let our listeners know where they can find more about you? Uh, obviously your agency, your book as well. I'm interested about reading that one. Um, so could you let us know where we can find you? Sure. Best place to find me is on LinkedIn where I write about AI constantly. And uh, I also periodically write about my backyard chickens because I have 55 chickens. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, you can find my books on Amazon. Uh, Puretainment is my latest book. It is about how social media has changed to an entertainment model that has different KPIs and different things that you need to do so that you can actually get paid to promote your business rather than paying out to promote your business. That's also probably a, a topic for another episode. I'm interested about that one. So for the marketing team, we can write that one down and see if we will fit it in. Yeah. yeah. Ellis just like taking notes in the background. Yeah, we're getting two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> two more episodes of the future. Yeah. Um, again, Matt, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, for listeners, if you want to learn more about AI, please make sure you contact Matt for LinkedIn. At least follow him so you can see what he's posting. Dan and I are also pretty active on LinkedIn. We talk about some of these topics as well as other things that we see on the day-to-day. Um, if you want to learn more about AdClicks, AdClicks.app, you can find us there. You can actually uh, give it a try for free. We're doing a couple of interesting stuff and, and we're thinking about how we can incorporate AI as well related down the line. And um, if you want to learn more about digital marketing in general, whyshirtmedia.com as well is your place to go. We have a great blog. We produce a lot of great content. So feel free to, to find us there. And thank you everyone for your time. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see everyone in the next episode.